to Sunday Morning Live, if you're watching live, <clears throat> if you're watching by replay, I uh, appreciate you taking your time out to watch this presentation. We're going to be talking about religion, science, and the occult, and really defining the occult and dispelling some myths, I think, about the occult in today's episode. So let's just... Let's just jump right in. Religion, science, and the occult. And hopefully by the time I'm done, you'll have a different understanding of what, uh, what the occult actually is and an understanding of how these things kind of work together in our attempt to explore our experience as human beings and understand the nature of reality. So religion is pretty, is pretty cut and dry, right? It's pretty simple. Religion generally provides you with a worldview. We're talking about three different worldviews when we're talking about religion, science, and the occult. And they're not as mutually exclusive as people may think. And so that's one of the things that I hope to bring out in this video is to help you understand what the occult is, because I can almost promise you there are a lot of myths that people believe about the occult. <clears throat> and also to maybe break down some of the barriers which cause these things to be expressed in ways that are mutually exclusive of one another. So religion uh, generally has to do with the study of God, the study of God and who we are as human beings. And it's based on the presupposition of a supreme being or supreme beings creator and that someone somewhere, almost all religions, involve someone somewhere, a person who claims to have special revelation, a person who claims to have experiences of something that is unseen, in this case God. So we can start with Jesus. Jesus, um, Christianity tells us that Jesus was the son of God, that he was God incarnate. So he was an exception to us. He was uh, someone other than us, if you're Trinitarian, he's God manifested in the flesh, so he's God in a way that we are not God. Or at the very least, he had a special connection, special revelation from God, and came to show us the way, came to tell us about God, came to tell us how we should live. So in other words, in the case of Jesus, or whether it's Muhammad, or whether it's Buddha, or whether it's Moses, or even Joseph Smith, right, the founder of the Mormon religion. It's someone who gets special revelation that the rest of us don't have access to, an experience that the rest of us don't have access to, that then comes and tells us about what God's like, and tells us how we should live. And so an organization grows up around that. A movement grows up around that. An organization grows up around that. And then in the case of Christianity, you have people who are specially called, specially chosen. In Catholicism, you have the priesthood, right? And they tell the rest of us what God's like. They tell the rest of us what the nature of reality is, and then they tell the rest of us how God wants us to conduct ourselves, how God wants us to live. So there's a morality to it. There's an absolute morality to it because we have received um, Jesus, you know, received or Moses received the download from God about how the rest of us are supposed to live. And then the institution exists to preserve it generationally. So, I'll get into that a little bit more later when I'm talking about the occult and the origins of Christianity, because it's it's very interesting, the intersection there. So that's religion, right? So religion says, trust someone else's experience above your own. And boy, we were big on that in the Christian church. You know, I don't go by uh, in the particular movement that I was part of. I don't go by what I see. I don't go by what I feel. I don't go by what I hear. I don't go by my own experience. I go by what I am told someone else's experience was. And the crux of the Christian religion is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in order to be orthodox in the first three centuries, 
you had to be part of an institution that claimed that it went back to the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That's what they call in the Catholic Church apostolic succession. So the tradition of orthodoxy, the teaching and worship of the church goes back to the disciples who were with Jesus, who ate with him on the night that he was betrayed, who witnessed his death, burial, and witnessed him in his resurrection. And so they received the teaching. So the institution of religion exists to preserve the teaching of this one person, in this case, Jesus, to, again, teach it to successive generations so that that truth is not lost. And so in that sense, what we're doing, oh, and let me say this, we're told to deny our experience so much so that in order to make it into heaven, in order to be right with God, in order to be reconciled with God, in order to be on the path to the truth, in order to be in the category of people who are saved and right, we have to completely deny everything, the most basic thing about our existence, which is that people die. Like none of us know someone who died and then days later was raised eternally from the dead. Now, I know when I was in the Christian faith, I had people who told me that they had prayed for people who had died or had been dead, and they raised them from the dead. They came back to life. But those people came back to life in a corruptible body. In other words, even if that's true, and some of the people that I knew who professed that, I knew them well, and I knew them to be honest and good-intentioned people. So, you know, I, I don't have good reason to doubt their experience, except for the fact that I've never experienced it, right? Or that it's not a common experience. But even with that, when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about someone who was not raised from the dead by someone else, but someone who raised himself from the dead, who just died and then you know, came back to life and came back to life in this incorruptible body that can move through walls and move through doors and then ultimately ascended into heaven. So that goes contrary to everything we know about human experience. And so we have to deny our own experience. We have to deny our own reality and believe that based on what we thought were eyewitness accounts that were recorded in the Bible, and then preserved for us through the institution of the church. So that was religion. So religion then is living um, your life based on the accounts of someone else's experience that has been preserved generationally. So we're so far removed from that experience is what I'm trying to say. Even if we say that we have writings of the early disciples, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were witnesses to the resurrection, we're still uh, abdicating our own experience or submitting ourselves to something that happened 2,000 years ago, an experience that happened 2,000 years ago that contradicts anything that we know, anything that we know in our experience about death. And we're taking the word, not just one person's word for it, but we're taking, you know, a, a succession of generations words for it. And so if you look at just basic, basic, basic Bible scholarship today, um, most Bible scholars, even conservative Bible scholars, even Christian Bible scholars will agree that there's no way that the New Testament was written by eyewitness uh, people who were actually there when Jesus lived and talked and died. So that makes it a little bit sketchy. But like I said, even if that was the case, we're still taking the word of people that has been passed down for thousands of years. So a person who becomes religious then really decides to submit themselves to that institution. Now, to make it even more complex, throughout the history of Christianity, uh, since the Reformation and probably even before, we have people who sort of cherry pick different parts of the Bible or different parts of the faith. And they say, no, 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 I've got the truth. I've got the right interpretation. I've got the right path and the right way. God has shown it to me. And so then new denominations branch out, right? So that's how you had the Reformation. That's how you have, what is it, something like 30,000 different denominations. So if you're a religious person, 
uh, and religion works for you, that's fine. But I just want to lay out the structure for you that you are uh, really subjecting your life. You're, you're abdicating your autonomy and subjecting your life to what other people are telling you that God says about how you should live based on their experience. That's a key distinction when we get into talking about the difference between religion and the occult. Now, science. (laughs) I want to say this about science. So science is the study of the material world. It's the study of matter. It's the study of materialism. The three foundations of sciences it has to be observable i want you to keep that in mind it has to be observable it has to be something that you can see it has to be measurable uh so it's mathematical in its uh the, the two are linked it has to be measurable it's it it can be measured in weight it can be measured in time and space so it's local it uh, has ounces or pounds or inches or feet or whatever the case may be. Or even in the case of energy and waves, it's still something that's observable and it's something that's measurable. So it exists in space. And then through the understanding of cause and effect and how the world works and how the material world interacts and works together, then it has to be repeatable. So those are the foundational principles of science that it's, we look at the world in the sense that of, of what is uh, observable, what is measurable. And then when we get into experiments, what is repeatable? <clears throat> so that's the study of matter. That's the study of the material world. And science has been very, effective and very accurate and very strong in telling us about the material world, telling us about our material existence. The problem with a lot of scientists is that science and rationality in the 19th and 20th century really grew up inside of a philosophical worldview or a philosophical, a philosophical worldview or a philosophical paradigm called materialism. And this is what a lot of people don't realize, that science itself, there's nothing wrong with science. In fact, like I said, science is very effective and very accurate at measuring the world around us and these bodies in which we live and things like this. But it's built on a philosophical presupposition that everything that exists, and this is really important, For a lot of scientists and most of the Western world, the presupposition of materialism is that everything that exists is observable and measurable. And because of that, we can eventually determine cause and effect or how this matter behaves in a way that it can become repeatable inside of experiments. So that's just as closed of a, that's just as closed-minded as the religious person. It's, it's really monotheism in a different sort of way. When we were in religion, in Christianity, it was, there is only God and God created all that there is, right? So there's a creator and a creation and there's only the one God. Well, in a lot of scientific materialism, we're saying, well, there's only the universe. And so you'll hear this in people's language when they get involved in other forms of spirituality. When they leave religion and get into other forms of spirituality, you can always tell if they're stuck in a materialistic framework or a a materialistic philosophy, even if they don't understand that they are, don't know enough to know that they are, or deny that they are, oftentimes their language will give them away. Their statements will give them away. So we'll start talking about the universe rather than talking about God. We'll start talking about the human experience uh, using only the paradigm of neuroscience or psychology. Or we'll talk about magic or things that we don't understand are just simply things that are occurring in a material world, that are occurring in a world that is only matter, that are occurring in a world that is very behavioristic and that can be defined completely from beginning to end in mathematics, 
in mathematical terms. So then math and science kind of becomes the new scripture. But again, it's, it's built on a presupposition, a presupposition that everything is material, that everything is a result of, uh, basically dead matter or dead energy or other types of uh, dead fields or things that we have not discovered, but it completely discounts that there could be anything non-local, that there could be anything not observable in the universe, that there could be anything that's not measurable in the universe. In other words, that there could be something outside of these mathematical equations. And they can be just as dogmatic. And so what I've seen is almost everybody I know, with few exceptions, some of you watching, but most of the people I know that have deconstructed from religion uh, accepted the presuppositions of materialism, and then they try to squeeze their experience and everybody else's experience into these definitions that fit scientific materialism based on the presupposition that matter is all that it is. So we'll look at every phenomena and every experience that we have or that other people have, and we'll fit it into one of the sciences. We'll fit it into, like I said, we'll we'll fit it into, when it comes to personal experience, we'll fit it into neuroscience, we'll fit it into psychology. And really, we're just as dogmatic. And a lot of atheists become even more dogmatic and even more evangelical than any Christians that I ever met or ever knew. And they either know they're operating from a the assumptions and presuppositions of philosophical materialism, or they don't know that they're doing it. And this is this is really difficult for us because um <clears throat> So many of our thoughts, so much of the way we are, is what I would call embedded thoughts. They're embedded thoughts. In other words, they're thoughts that we have that are so second in nature to us that we are not aware of them. I'm not even, t- I'm, I'm talking about a deeper level of the subconscious than most people are willing to go. So, <clears throat> for example, um, I worked with a, a person this week and one of the things I've been doing with some of my clients is helping them identify their value system and how their value system was shaped and formed for them. And then whether or not they want to keep all aspects of that value system as they express themselves going forward in this version of themselves or this part of their lives. And so when we're talking about values, we're talking a lot about embedded thoughts. So we could take any value. So in this case, we took work ethic because this person was um, really needing some rest, really needing to just uh, let themselves go and, and enjoy themselves in the context that they were in in the moment. But they were beating themselves up with thoughts like you're being lazy with thoughts like you're uh, not doing anything, you're not being productive, you're not accomplishing anything, you're just making excuses for yourself. So this other part would come up and say, yeah, but I need to rest, and I need to take it easy, and I need to take some of the pressure off. And then the other part of the brain would uh, jump in there, or the part of the mind would jump in there and say, no, you, uh, you're just making excuses for yourself. Now, when we first started working, She wasn't fully conscious of how she was thinking about herself in relationship to rest and vacation and relaxation and stuff like that. So those thoughts were the subconscious thoughts. So as we were talking, she's like, well, um, I'm making excuses for I tell myself I'm making excuses for myself. I tell myself I'm being lazy. I tell myself I'm not being productive. Okay, so now she's conscious of those thoughts. So what was subconscious is now conscious. And then we had to say, okay, but where did you learn that? Where did you learn that, that you're making excuses? Where did you learn that you're being lazy? Where did you learn that it's not okay to rest? Well, I was, you know, told that a lot growing up. And so we started to look at the family unit and the messages that were received from the family unit going into a deeper level of the subconscious. but still not getting to the embedded thoughts because the embedded thoughts is a ground, if you will, I'm going to use a metaphor here for embedded thoughts. Embedded thoughts, if you thought of consciousness like a garden, the 
you know, vegetables that are growing up in the garden there are the thoughts that we've been talking about. You're lazy, making excuses, and so forth. But beneath that was a ground of embedded messaging that she received that was if that, that was an all or nothing thinking that if you're doing any resting, you're being lazy. If you're doing any, if you're not moving your body all the time, you're not being productive. And then embedded below that were thoughts and beliefs about self-worth and thoughts and beliefs about uh, the value that she had for herself. So not just value for working and effort and that, but what that meant about her as a person. And what that meant about life. If you, if you just lay around on the sofa, you're going to go broke. You're going to end up homeless. You're going to end up on the street. See, those were so deeply, deeply, deeply embedded that she didn't even realize that was that, that this thing of feeling and beating herself up for resting and being on vacation and relaxing was the result of all these embedded thoughts about how the world worked, about who she was as a person, about her self-worth. So we have grown up in a culture and we have grown up in a society. And I talked about this last week, about how this even comes out in our superheroes, our superhero mythology. We've grown up in a society that is very embedded in scientific materialism, that, that... teaches us and encourages us and sends messages to us all the time that matter is all that there is and that there is a rational, material, scientific explanation for every experience that we have. And so it's very easy for people to leave those embedded thoughts of religion and go through lots of confusion and disruption through this process that we call deconstruction or healing from religious trauma, and then very easily just uh, slide into this foundation of the embedded thoughts of scientific materialism to where we are viewing the world through a set of assumptions that are not provable, that are actually very self-evidently False. When we just think about our own experience, and I brought this up last week, but there is, so let's look at neuroscience. So they can map what happens when you're dreaming. They can measure it. They can look at it. They can observe it in some respects. And a couple things that is observable when a person is dreaming is rapid eye movement, right? REM sleep. So the eyes, rapid eye movement, the eyes are going back and forth like this. And you can observe that and know, okay, that person's uh, dreaming. They can hook you up to certain uh, things that will measure your brainwave patterns. They can do neuro scans on you to look at what parts of the brain are lighting up. These things are observable. They can measure the brainwave pattern. And so we know that when a person is dreaming, they're in a theta brainwave pattern. Um, they're in a different brainwave pattern than when they're awake. But what's absolutely not measurable at all, what's absolutely not observable to the outside observer at all, and what's definitely not repeatable in any way, shape, or form, is the actual contents of the dream. So you and I could both be sleeping, and I could be dreaming about being in Hawaii with my family and being at a conference and um, my grandmother who passed away in 2003 or 2002, 2003. My grandmother was there. She was helping me get ready for the conference. That could be the content of my dream. You could be dreaming. And when they're measuring my brain, it's showing these theta brainwave patterns, doing the rapid eye movements. And you could be dreaming at the same time, theta brainwave pattern, rapid eye movements, and you could be having an absolute nightmare. You could be being chased by a stalker uh, in a house that you can't get out of, and every time you open a door, there's a wall. I mean, 
So what I'm saying is the emotional content, the visual content, every aspect of that experience can be completely different. And there's not a single neuroscientific way to observe it, to map it, to make it repeatable, not even a good theory for how to explain it. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. So what I'm trying to tell you is that every night when you dream, you're having an experience that science, neuroscience, and psychology has absolutely no explanation for, absolutely no way to repeat it, and you do it every night. So there is something there. Now, the scientific materialist will say, yeah, we just haven't discovered it yet. But that's a presupposition. That's making the, the phenomena of dream that you have no scientific explanation for. But because you're so certain about science and you're so locked into your philosophy and your presuppositions, you're making that experience squeeze into and fit your definition of reality that neuroscience will eventually explain it. They just haven't come up with it yet. And you're doing the same thing we used to do with the scriptures or the same thing that they do in religion when people would come in with questions and when people would come in with problems. What about the problem of evil? Why does God heal some and not heal others? What about this? What about that? And you're so certain in your presuppositions that you squeeze some explanation that is very unsatisfying, built on a presupposition that God's ways are higher than our ways and God's mysterious and we his ways are past finding out or whatever it is that we told people. We had to make their questions and their experiences fit into our philosophical presuppositions and paradigms based on assumptions that we did not know Anything about. We know nothing about this, but somehow we know for sure that science will eventually figure this out. Do you realize <laughs> what you're doing when you do that? Like, why can't we just say, you know, we don't know. We don't know what that is. So here's what I'm trying to say. We have such embedded thoughts and values about scientific materialism that we are just as close-minded when we leave religion and go down a different path with science as we were when we were in religion. Or when we go down a path of atheism, we're just certain that there isn't a God. There, there, there isn't a God because the only thing that exists is that which is measure, observable, measurable, and repeatable. And yet we have experiences like dreaming every night that is not observable, measurable to a very fine degree or repeatable. You see what I'm saying? So we end up then in the same way that we deny ourselves in religion and say, okay, I'm going off of these presuppositions that come from this person's experience who was raised from the dead and the people who saw him and the generations that preserved it, I'm going to now go off the presuppositions of scientific materialism because scientific materialism is so deep in the subconscious and embedded in us through messaging and through school and through everything uh, around us in a material world. And obviously, we live in a material world, so it feels very intuitive and it feels very... Um, Normal, and so it's very easy then to slide into the religion of science. And so what I'm saying is that science is very good at measuring what can be measured with the tools that we have right now. Science is very good at observing what can be observed in the material plane right now. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with science or that we should throw science out. I'm just saying science is not the end-all, be-all. It's incomplete, and I guess that's what frustrates me a little bit with the atheistic community is that they're making the same mistake that I made in religion and not aware that they're making the same mistake by discounting people's experience, discounting their own experience, discounting things about reality that they may or may not know because they have to fit it into some kind of scientific explanation. Why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about what's not observable and measurable? Because that then gets into the study of the occult. So talked about religion, talked about science. Now I want to look at what is the occult. Now, if you were brought up in any kind of Christian tradition, especially Pentecostalism, then when I say the word occult, what I say when I use the word occult and what you hear we are talking about two totally different things. 
And this is the funny thing about language, about semantics. If I were to say to a room of people, I want you to imagine an apple. I want you to think about an apple and imagine an apple. Well, everybody in that room is going to have some nuance of difference of what they think about when they think about an apple based on their personal experience and references that their brain is drawing from, from their memory. So some people might see a golden delicious apple. Some people might see a um, red apple. Some people might see a green apple. Some people might see a Macintosh. Some people might think of a computer or a company. If I were to say, in America, I have a flat, most people would assume I'm talking about my tire. I have a flat. Most people would assume I'm talking about my tire. <clears throat> if I were to say in the UK, I have a flat, I would assume that most people would be talking, would think I was talking about my apartment. So what you're referencing in your memory about what that word means is what you hear when someone else is, when someone else uses it. <clears throat> oftentimes we think there's a shared agreement about the meaning of a word when a person's using it differently than the person who's hearing it. So I realize for a lot of my followers who are still in Christianity, and especially for my former friends that have written me off, uh, when I put a title out there like Religion, Science, and the Occult, I know what they think I'm going to be talking about. Because for a lot of people, occultism has to do with superstitious magic or really what we might call baneful magic, baneful meaning harmful magic, black magic, the idea of people, you know, donning black robes and doing rituals, uh, worshiping Satan, worshiping demons, conjuring demons, uh, trying to exert their will over other people. So you might think about things like love spells. You might think about things like um, uh, curses that you put on your enemies. Uh, again, Satan worship, the dark arts. And that's what we're taught. That's what we're taught that occultism is. But in reality, when, when I started to study into the occult, I was shocked to discover how much of it was not that. I was shocked to discover, the first time I read an occult book, I was shocked to discover how much in that book was about devotion to God in the Western sense, how much of it was using the names of God in incantations in the Western sense, biblical names for God, and also how much of that book described some of my own experiences. I was shocked at how similar Christian mysticism and the mystical path of Christian mysticism that I was on, how similar it was to occultism in these books on the occult. So if you look up the definition of the occult, it simply means, to make it very simple, the occult is the study and the exploration of unseen forces. It's the study or the exploration of unseen forces or that which is unseen. It actually comes from the word ocular, which has to do with vision. So, it's the study of that which is not observable. It's a study of forces or events or experiences or phenomena that we have that's not observable or measurable. So that takes it outside the realm of scientific materialism. If it's not outside the realm of scientific materialism, it's not occultism. So here's the problem that occultists have, right? Because religion has said occult is evil, it's dark, it's Satan worship, it's going to send you straight to hell, it's deception, you're messing with demons and devils. So <clears throat> it's got a stigma around it with religion. And I know there's some people, oh my God, Aaron's gotten into the occult now. I knew it. I knew he was going to get into the occult. Some people just in shock, you know, because that's their reference for it. Not realizing if they were Pentecostal, if they were charismatic, if they even prayed, they were in somehow 
in some way, shape or form involved in the investigation of what's not seen because they weren't scientific materialists. So in that sense, all religion is occultic. All religion falls under the paradigm of occultism, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. That's being very, very general. So it's stigmatized by religion, but also because it's the science of what cannot be observed. It's very stigmatized by materialism and rationalism and scientific materialism. So it's an area of study that is stigmatized and that is excluded and looked down upon by both religion and science. And yet, neither religion nor science can tell us that there are not unseen forces that move upon our lives, that we can sense or that we can feel. So occultism really is about a deeper level of perception and presents for us an idea of a universe upon which the material plane is only one plane of human existence. So for the occultist, there is no problem with science because science is the study of the material plane and an occultist wants to learn everything they can about reality. See, the occultist is the real searcher. The occultist is the real seeker. The occultist is the real questioner. The occultist is the real person with the open mind because the occultist is not going to throw away science or contradict science in favor of something that's not scientific because the occultist understands that the natural plane is one level of human experience. And science is very good at telling us and exploring that part of our experience, exploring that part of the cosmos, exploring that part of reality. And I suppose then from that sense, the occultist also doesn't really have a problem with religion because religion is the philosophical, at least, ideas of what the creator is like, what God is like, what the supreme being is like. So if we were to look at different planes of reality or different levels of reality and not like it's like a layered cake, but just to help you understand it and help you think about it in categories, then religion would be dealing with the highest level of that with God who's in heaven, right? And science would be dealing from an occultist perspective with the lowest level of that, which is the material plane. But then the occultist is also interested in what lies in between. What's in the in-between? What's in the levels of possible existence and experience and reality? What's between spirit and matter? We could look at it that way. Religion is a study of spirit and science is a study of matter and occultism is the exploration of everything in between. What are the levels or layers of reality that are above the material world or are more subtle? Or what if there are things, and maybe we can't even call them things, but what if there are levels of existence that exist that are not observable, measurable, and repeatable, but yet still influence our lives or interact with us, or we interact with them. That would fall into the realm of occultism. But here's the difference. Occultism does not have a dogma to push on everybody else. In other words, it doesn't have a dogma from an enlightened teacher from centuries ago or generations ago who experienced spitter (laughs) spitter (laughs) experienced spirit or God in a way that was exceptional to the rest of us, exceptional to the rest of humanity for the purpose of telling us how we should all then live. 
dogmatically, based on theology, based on doctrine, based on morality. And it's also not dogmatic in the sense that the only thing that exists out there are things that are observable, measurable, and repeatable, right? That's all that there is. So the occultist is kind of like the Gnostic, and I'm get into a little bit of the history of occultism before I'm done. And what a Gnostic is. Some of you may not even know what a Gnostic is. <clears throat> so just bear with me as I as I break this down. In other words, what, what the occultist is saying is that there are opportunities and realms for you to experience as a human being that go beyond materialism. That you can interact with and that you can experience for yourself and you can know by experience. In other words, we can take the cover off of the unseen so that you can interact with the unseen forces and the unseen world <clears throat> for yourself. And then you can make a decision and determination <clears throat> about what you want to do with that and how you then want to live. So it's more this idea of if there is a God, if there is the divine, why would the divine choose one person, <clears throat> give them special revelation, and then raise up an institution to preserve that special revelation so the rest of us can live by it but not experience it? So the rest of us can subjugate our own autonomy, our own power, and our own experience to that. Right? I guess at the same time, you know, scientific materialism, the academies, and boy, is this true in the academies, in the sciences. Um, you have to subjugate your opinions or your exploration of unseen things to the academies because we won't fund research or take research seriously that even if it shows good results, we will not continue to explore that if it does not fit within our materialistic philosophical paradigm. Back to religion, though. Why would God or the divine give this one person this one thing and then have an institution? Why not, if God were going to communicate, why not communicate it in ways that we can experience it in the same way that we can experience the material plane? In other words, we don't, we, we all experience the material plane. Why can't we all experience God on the same level that Jesus experienced God? And so occultism kind of entertains that idea, kind of likes that idea and says, okay, there are ways to explore and interact with these things so that you can know for yourself. And so when you're studying occultism, you're looking at people who have studied this aspect of phenomena. Like if you were to look at occult philosophies, you would look at people who have explored and studied and experienced this other, these other realms, these other phenomena that people have, and then build off of that just like you would any other body of knowledge or any other field. But it's not a dogma. It's not a doctrine that you have to follow and you have to live by. It's just something to say, this is what, you know, here's, here's a path for you. Here's a way for you to go. So occultism, the term is a French term, and it goes all the way back to, you know, the Renaissance period. Um, and in the Renaissance period, there was a revival of Neoplatonism. There was a revival of the Kabbalah. There was a revival of Greek philosophy that, again, is Neoplatonism, that is a form of idealism that says consciousness is base reality. Mind is base reality, not material. Material plane is just one aspect or one level of reality, but there are levels of mind and substance that are beyond that. Again, unseen forces that are interacting with us. <clears throat> and this goes all the way back to 
the Greco-Roman time period, the Hellenistic time period, or the time period of Christ, except that it predates that. So a lot of Neoplatonic, uh, Neoplatonism, Platonic ideas go back to Pythagoras, and it's said that Pythagoras and the Greeks learned these Platonic and Neoplatonist concepts from the ancient Egyptians. So there is, for a lot of people who are into the occult and study the occult, it has nothing to do with Satan. It has nothing to do with demons. It has nothing to do with baneful magic or dark magic or cursing or hurting people. It is an explanation. Most occult writings in Renaissance, when they were using the term occultism, um, they were recovering what's known as the Western esoteric tradition that originated in Egypt. <laughs> and if you want to know what that is, if you want to know just if you want a good introduction that's very accessible to the layperson about the Western esoteric tradition, then read the book, The Kabbalion. Um, it may not be the most accurate or it's definitely not the most complete book, but it's a great introduction. It's very accessible to people. The Kabbalion by the three initiates. It's really written by a guy named William Walter Atkinson. And I had discovered William Walter Atkinson's writings many, 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 many years ago, long before I discovered the Kabbalion. But he was writing under a pseudonym called the three initiates. And so, um, and it's, it's a great, you can listen to it on audible or you can get the book. It's very inexpensive. That will give you a idea of the worldview of occultism based on the Western esoteric tradition. So here's what's really interesting to me. <clears throat> Just like I was talking earlier about language, communication is context dependent. <clears throat> so again, if I say, <clears throat> excuse me, in America, I have a flat, you're going to think my tire I say in England, I have a flat, you're going to think my apartment. If I say gay today, we know we're talking about sexual orientation. If I said gay in the 1920s, we'd be talking about being happy. So culture and time determines the meaning and context of words. So to understand the Bible, <laughs> you have to put it back into its Greco-Roman context. <clears throat> or its Jewish context. And that's a whole video in and of itself. Um, but the point I want to make is that Neoplatonism was a competing philosophy that was competing with Christianity. The two were growing up at the same time. Neoplatonism would trace its roots back to Egypt through Pythagoras and through the Egyptian myths and stories, <clears throat> Christianity would trace its roots back to Egypt through Moses. So both kind of originate in Egypt in that sense and <clears throat> grow up together. But Neoplatonism gave birth to a movement called Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism that starts with a G-N, like Nat, Gnosticism. It comes from a Greek word meaning gnosis. And gnosis means to know because you have experienced it. And um, <clears throat> so to be agnostic is to add an A to that and to say, I don't know. An A in the Greek is a negative. It negates the knowledge. So I'm without knowledge. So an agnostic is someone without knowledge. It comes from the word Gnosticism. And the Gnostic movement was also a Christian movement. They also venerated Jesus, but they did not venerate Jesus as something other than themselves. When the Gospel of Thomas is being written, uh, the Gospel of Thomas is considered one of the 
most complete Gnostic Gospels that we have, he says that he's Thomas, the twin of Jesus. And that caused the Orthodox Church a lot of problems because they're like, well, Jesus didn't have a twin. But from a esoteric perspective, and the word esotericism just means from a secret perspective or from a symbolic perspective. Thomas is saying, I'm a twin. I'm the same as. And so the message of the Gospel of Thomas is how to open up this gnosis. So a teacher in a religion is teaching you to subject your experience to someone else's experience. A teacher in the occult or a teacher in gnosis is showing you how to have the experiences for yourself and then to help you integrate those experiences into what they mean to you and how you should then live as a result. So those were competing religions or spiritual paths or spiritual experiences. And I think, unfortunately, um, the Orthodox faith, the one that's controlled by the power of the church, the one that is agnostic in the sense that we want you to deny your experiences. We don't want you to have these experiences. Um, it kind of won the day. And then there's a revival of this in the Renaissance period, in France and Italy. And then you they're using this term occultism to define gnosis or to define Gnosticism or to define what else exists out there other than this material plane. And then the Renaissance in both periods, in the Greek period, uh, I'm sorry, with this revival of uh, Greco-Roman philosophy in, during, the Rem- Re- during the Renaissance period, uh, rationalism and materialism won the day. <clears throat> rationalism and materialism won the day. So, <laughs> that leaves occultism kind of out there. So, Here's what's what's really cool about this and the way I've been putting this together and what I want to do to help people is that there's a third way, right? You don't have to be stuck in orthodox religion that's killing you, that's traumatizing you, that's stripping you of your autonomy and your decision-making, that's filling you with guilt and shame and self-doubt and subjugation. And you don't have to go the full-on atheist, materialistic route. I think there needs to be a revival of Gnosticism, and as I've been, or occultism, of the exploration of the paranormal, the exploration of the unseen, the exploration of what's out there and who's out there, and how do these dimensions and beings and aspects interact with us? What are these other spheres of reality that are between spirit and matter? What balances spirit and matter? What is it? That makes us human so that you can live with a lot of excitement. You can live with the supernatural. You can live. So, so Mitch Horowitz has written a book called Occult America that I'd recommend that if you're interested in this, that you can get called a book called Occult America. And he talks about how America has been the seedbed for occultism, but he puts all kinds of stuff under the uh, umbrella of occultism because it's just a study of unseen forces. So he, he does a whole uh, section in the book on Neville Goddard. He does a section on Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian science, uh, the law of attraction, the new age movement, um, African spirituality that came over into America, Theosophy and Madame Blavatsky, um, Edgar Casey, all of this falls under the umbrella of occultism. The, so if you're interested in the law of attraction or prayer or magic, all of that falls, <clears throat> falls under the umbrella of occultism. So in the sense of someone like Neville Goddard and Joseph Mur- Murphy, there's even Christian occultism in that sense. Because again, we're just talking about the study of unseen forces or of that which is not seen. So what is exciting to me is that there's this third path of perhaps a Gnostic revival that 
we can choose for ourselves, that we can choose to explore for ourselves. So I want to invite you to come along and explore that. And the other thing that was exciting to me was that I realized that while there was elements of religiosity in the ministry that I had for almost 30 years, undoubtedly there was, and I've been very open about that on this channel and on this page, and deconstructing from that, I can honestly say there were also large components of Gnosticism. I could I could say that my driving thrust for getting getting into Christianity and becoming a preacher and the kinds of stuff that I taught and the kinds of conferences that I attended and the kinds of things that I attempted to teach people that what I was really trying to do was have the experiences for myself, find out for myself, try it for myself first. Not just go to a conference or pick up a book and read it and preach it, but try it for myself. And I, I live by a principle where if I preach something, more than likely I had lived with that, what we call revelation or application of that revelation for a year or two before I even started talking about it. And if it wasn't working for me, I didn't want to pass it off to someone else. So I think my primary motivation, my primary quest and the thrust of everything that I've done has been in this path of Gnosticism has been in this path of occultism. And uh, so that's exciting to me. Uh, that helps me retell the story in a way that's much more affirming, much more honoring of all the different parts of me, of all the different experiences that I've had, and gives me a frame whereby I can go forward as a teacher. I can go forward as a fellow sojourner, uh, someone that's on the journey with you. Um, so again, if you're interested in that, subscribe to the channel. Um, I'll be doing these uh, Sunday morning lives, working on content. I haven't put up as many videos on YouTube because I'm working on content to eventually put into a Patreon page. There's no sense in opening a Patreon page if you don't have content for the Patreon page. And that's going to take me a few months. I'm just being honest about it. So, um, But let's let's look through some of the comments here. Uh, let's see. Um, Becky says, hello, found your channel recently, but I'm new to your chat. Love your channel. Thank you so much, Becky. Um, good morning, Dawn. Benny's on. Got to see Benny yesterday. That was, that was fun. Um, good morning, Renee. Tom, good morning. Good morning, Vanessa. She's probably, I think she has something on Sunday mornings. No, she's still on. Um, David said, discovered your channel today serendipitously. What a great discovery. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. Um, lots of people giving me greetings. C, Robert, Anna, Marie, Chad, Jeremy, Ben. Ben says, so Doubting Thomas was just skeptical of external mediation between divinity and humanity. <laughs> I like that. That would be interesting to go back and look at that story of Doubting Thomas having to touch and see Jesus in the light of Gnosticism. Um, Chad says, how would you distinguish between occultism and mysticism? They're very, very similar. Um, I wouldn't necessarily use them as synonyms for each other. I think when you're talking about mysticism, you are talking about the exploration of mysteries. You're talking about the exploration of that which is hidden. And But generally, mysticism is going to have more to do, at least the way I understand the word, is going to have more to do with the divine and union with the divine and seeking union with the divine. So it's getting to that higher plane uh, of experiencing God, experiencing oneness with God. Whereas occultism is everything in between. So occultism would be, would include spirits, ancestors, ghosts, um, angels, demons, um, uh, extraterrestrials that are interdimensional, uh, human powers like mental telepathy, uh, mind over matter, law of attraction, um shamanism shamanic journeys 
that kind of stuff, the, 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 the paranormal stuff that's, that would be the focus of occultism. We're exploring all these paranormal experiences and all these different levels or potential levels of experience and or reality. Whereas mysticism is focused more on and more has more to do with the divine. So, um, so anyway, I, that's all I'm seeing as far as comments. So thanks guys for uh, tuning in and ladies. And I don't know, like I was told recently that just saying ladies is no longer a PC politically correct. So I know when I'm on social media, I'm going to offend somebody, but uh, <laughs> people, Thank you for tuning in. I hope wherever you are and whenever you're watching this, that uh, if you're watching it this weekend, you have a great holiday. And um, if not, if you're watching it some later time and date, then uh, I hope that you will be immensely uh, blessed and prosperous and that all will be well with you. Uh, thanks, everybody. And I will be back next week.